Please pray with me. Father in heaven, as we turn yet again to your word, we want to thank you once more for it. We want to thank you for being a speaking God, the God who writes things down. We want to thank you for being a God who reveals things and who understands the ones to whom he reveals them and the massive limitations under which they operate. We want to thank you in particular for this letter to the Romans, which to your infinite intelligence must be impossibly simplistic. Baby talk, as Calvin would say, but which for our tiny, tiny minds is so often simply beyond our ability to fully comprehend. And yet you have not only given us your word, you've also given us your spirit to guide us into a right understanding of this word, to keep us from losing our way and straying down paths that lead us nowhere. And so we ask again that you would do that now, guide us and teach us as only you can. And in doing that, I would personally ask that you might please use this sinful, weak, foolish preacher to make your will known. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing this morning with our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, picking up with verse 14 of chapter 7, working through verse 1, actually, of chapter 8, which it seems to me serves both as a conclusion to what precedes and an introduction to what follows. Now, if you've been with us for any part of this series, you may know that by now that what we have here is, it seems to be, a letter of introduction sent by a missionary named Paul to a church that he had not planted, but which he knew of and with which he'd had some connection through some of its members. And Paul's purpose, as we can attempt to reconstruct it from what we know for certain of his situation, but his purpose seems to have been to introduce himself to the Roman church in order to win their confidence and support so that he might begin to use them as a base of operations for his ongoing missionary endeavor. He had previously operated out of Antioch, which was much further to the east, but now that his gospel mission had moved further and further westward, he needed a new base of operations on which he'd continue working, and Rome would be the most logical choice for that base of operations. Thus, this letter. Further, and judging from the contents and structure of the letter, it seems that Paul felt that the most important part of winning the confidence and support of the Roman church involved him showing them his ministerial credentials, so to speak. And in particular, the theological framework from within which he operated. Uh, they needed to know that they could trust him and that the gospel that he was preaching was the same one that they had been taught and by which they had been saved. And so that task really drives and results in the bulk of the content of this letter. With that purpose in mind then, the letter starts out uh, with a brief introduction of Paul and his gospel centered on this concept of the righteousness of God in the first 17 verses. And then Paul spends five chapters doing two main things. First of all, he shows them the reason why the world needs the gospel, namely because all people stand condemned before God by their unrighteousness and so deserving of the wrath of God towards them. 
Secondly, Paul shows that God's provision for his people, nevertheless, who have no way of cleansing themselves of their unrighteousness, was to provide them with an alternative righteousness, one that was not their own, that they did not deserve or earn, but was in fact a righteousness that he provided based entirely upon what Jesus had done, his life and death and resurrection. And that's what Paul spends the first five chapters of this letter doing. But then Paul has a problem. And the problem is this. He has done such a good job, such a thorough job of showing the universal sinfulness of humanity and the completely sufficient grace of God for undeserving sinners. He's done such a good job of that that all sorts of objections are being raised in people's minds. He's so thoroughly decimated the idea of anybody's ever working themselves into God's favor. And he's so completely pushed the grace of God that some people feared that his teaching would actually lead people into moral anarchy. They feared that people would get the idea that God was so gracious and forgiving that how they lived didn't even matter. That they could just do anything, sin as often and as heinously as possible... And it didn't matter because the grace of God was this universal hall pass that gets you out of everything. Even further, some people have the crazy idea that they, in fact, ought to sin more just so that it would highlight God's grace that much more. Now, of course, that's crazy thinking. And Paul wrote Romans 6 to deal with that kind of crazy thinking. And in Romans 6, he makes it clear that the grace of God properly understood did not at all lead to moral anarchy and in fact can't for two reasons. Firstly, because of our union with Christ, the fact that we are spiritually united to Jesus and it's a real connection. And that union means, among other things, that sin cannot win and God will eventually have his way with us and he will bring us into conformity with the one with whom we've been united. He will bring us into conformity with this one to whom we have been united. Secondly, the grace of God cannot lead to moral anarchy because we've undergone a change of masters. So that we're no longer slaves to sin, and we'll see more about that later as we once were, but we are actually now slaves to righteousness. So by means of these two responses, Paul dealt quite adequately with that first complaint about overteaching the grace of God. But there's another problem. Not only has Paul's strong emphasis on the grace of God raised objections in people's minds, his strong words about the law of God have had a similar effect. Because Paul was aware that there were some who, who had a wrong understanding of the purpose for which the law was given and so saw law-keeping and rule-keeping as a means of making oneself acceptable to God. Because he's seen that, he's gone out of his way to show that that's simply not the case at all. And how it is that it's not what the law was given for. That's not the reason that they have the law. And in the process of showing that, Paul has ended up saying a number of seemingly negative things about the law of God in order to make his point. Uh, he said in Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 4.13-15, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs. Faith is null. If it's the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. 
For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there's no transgression. Romans 5. Now the law came in to increase. The law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So Paul has said a lot of things about the law of God. Things that pointed mainly to the law's weakness. That is what the law could not do. It cannot justify people in the sight of God. The law cannot do that. It wasn't the reason why Abraham received the promises that he did from God. It doesn't deliver people from the wrath of God, but in fact it increases their exposure to the wrath of God by increasing their culpability. And at the beginning of chapter 7, then, he talks about how the law in the hand of sin actually becomes, this good thing, the law, becomes a tool or means by which people are led further into sin. In short, Paul has said a lot of things about the law, and in the ears of those who had this wrong view of the law, had maybe too much of a view of the law, maybe an idolatry of it in some ways, to those people it sounded like he had completely rejected it and abandoned it, He had made his case so strongly that some people were even under the impression that Paul thought that the law was positively sinful and evil. And so over against those kinds of objections, Paul wrote Romans 7. And to clarify what his view of the law was and to talk about the relationship between Christians and the law of God. And so he's been doing that in this chapter and we've seen him doing it in our previous two looks at chapter 7. So let's continue with our look into that this morning by listening now to the verses before us. Romans 7, 14 to 25. Everything I have said leading up to this point is flawed. Everything I say after this will be flawed. But this part, this reading of these verses, these are perfect. And that's the last perfect thing that will be said this morning. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do not do, sorry, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being... But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, all sorts of things that might be said about these verses in any number of ways that one might go about trying to unpack and understand them. We're not going to say most of them. And we're not going to unpack most of it. 
We're just going to barely scratch the surface. Nevertheless, let me say, I do hope that we're going to get at some of what I think are the most crucial, central issues in these verses. And one way to approach that is to start off by asking the question, who is the I that is speaking here? Who is the I that is speaking? In the space of 11 verses, Paul uses the word I no less than 25 times. And one of the big questions is, who is this? Not surprisingly, Bible commentators have a number of theories on this. We won't be discussing all of them, thankfully. But four of the more common positions are, with these words, Paul is describing his pre-conversion experience, his experience as an unbeliever. He's looking back on his time as a zealous religious Jewish man and his struggle with the law of God, trying to keep it perfectly but failing miserably in the end. Or, with these words, Paul is using the first person to describe the unique experience of Jewish people who had responded to Jesus' ministry and preaching and had begun to follow him, but who had not yet received the blessing of the indwelling Spirit of God because that particular moment in redemptive history had not yet happened. So he's... Paul has in mind people who had responded to Jesus' preaching, but before Pentecost had come along, so they're in this kind of no-man's-land space, and he's describing their struggle with the law. That's another view. With these words, there's a third view. Paul is simply describing the experiences of a young, immature believer. Or, with these words, Paul is describing the ongoing experience, his ongoing experience, as a mature and maturing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said those aren't the only options offered by Bible scholars, but they're the main ones, and we're going to keep our focus on those for our purposes this morning. So with those in mind, the question becomes, which one is most likely the correct way to understand this passage? Because it does matter. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Well, for starters, in response to the view that these words are describing the experiences of Paul in a pre-conversion state, that is, as an unbeliever, Let me go to the strongest reason typically given for that. It's based on what Paul says in verse 14, verses 22 to 23. Let me read those for you again. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. That's the language of slavery. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Again, the language of slavery. Some Bible scholars look at those verses to conclude that this scripture could not be the words of a believer because the person in view here is talking about being sold under sin. He's talking about being a slave to sin, about being captive to sin. And the problem there, at least in the eyes of some, is that Paul has just spoken quite strongly in chapter 6 about the fact that God's people are no longer slaves to sin. but are now slaves of righteousness. And so on the basis of that, and in spite of the strong evidence in these verses that points in the other direction, these scholars maintain that Paul couldn't possibly be talking about the experience of a believer here. But is that really true? Even if it is true that believers are no longer slaves to sin, and it is, in an ultimate sense, and sin is no longer their master, and it isn't, does that mean... Does that mean that it cannot be the case that they experience something like a temporary enslavement? A bondage to sin, even a particular sin, from time to time, for a season? 
Because Paul's language in other places would seem to suggest pretty clearly that such things are a real possibility for believers. 1 Corinthians 5, for example, Paul describes a situation where a man is caught up in a particular form of sexual immorality with his stepmother that seems to have gone on for a while and seems to have had a stronghold on him, so much so that Paul has this to say to the Corinthians about that situation. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, we don't have time to unpack all that's going on there in Corinth or all that Paul means by those words, but we don't have to, I don't think, to see that the situation described there does seem to be a very real, ongoing struggle, something that must have looked an awful lot like bondage and slavery to sin. Even further, if you look back at Romans 6 itself, where Paul talks about our not being slaves to sin any longer, if we look back there, we see that even though Paul has talked about believers being dead to sin and alive to God, and has declared that sin will have not have dominion over a believer, not ultimately, he nevertheless says in the very same chapter, he says this, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. It would make no sense at all for Paul to issue an instruction about not letting sin reign if such a thing were not actually possible, at least at some level, would it? Would he forbid that which cannot possibly happen? That would be like telling people, whatever you do, don't fly. And there are other passages that could be appealed to, but the point is the fact that Paul firmly believes that God's people are no longer slaves to sin does not mean that they can no longer conceive of or that he can no longer conceive of or speak of God's people in those terms. He's not contradicting himself when he does it. He's simply describing the ongoing reality of what it is like to live in this world with these bodies and these broken, sinful hearts and yet also with the Spirit of God having made us spiritually alive and being resident within us. All those things are part of the mix for us as God's people. So when Paul says we are no longer slaves to sin, he's obviously not saying that we can no longer sin. Nor is he saying that sin can no longer have a serious grip on a person's mind and heart. It can and it does. If you don't believe it, spend a month with me and I'll show you through my life and the lives of people I meet with. He's not saying that sin can no longer have a serious hold on a person's mind and heart. It can and it does. So what is he saying? He's saying that it is no longer our only option. A person who is a complete slave to sin and has no other master has no choice but to sin. But that's not our situation. Not anymore. We no longer have to obey sin. We're no longer in the situation where we cannot help but sin. We, we who are His have been made alive spiritually by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is not just semantics. We are now responsive to the things of God in a way that we could not have been and were not before. 
Remember 1 Corinthians 2? You remember these words? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For or because they are folly to him. They're foolish to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. One of the things that is true about us because of Christ's work on the cross and because of the application of that work by the Holy Spirit is that we have been regenerated. We've been made alive spiritually. And that's one of the reasons why Paul can say we are no longer slaves to sin. Because while we still have this reality of indwelling sin, a sinful nature, and we're going to have it with us until we die, we also are awakened to God and we are inhabited by the Spirit of God. Which means we have a built-in conflict. Every one of us is a walking battlefield. Precisely because we do have a new master, Christ, even while we retain, it's important, even while we retain the potential for responding to our old one. We don't belong to sin anymore, but it's a familiar voice. It's real familiar. And one that remains quite easy for us to respond to. And I say all of that to say this. To conclude that these words could not be describing the experience of a believer simply because they appear to be inconsistent with what Paul says about Christians in chapter 6 is in my judgment both a misreading of Romans 6 and a misunderstanding of the power and reality of remaining sin in the heart of a believer. And as if that's not enough on its own, if you compare these verses to other places where Paul is clearly describing his pre-conversion experiences, places like Galatians 1, 13 to 14 or Philippians 3, 4 to 6, If you compare it to those places, you see what is described in those verses is very different in tone and nature to what you find here in Romans 7. It doesn't match up at all. And so if saying that these words are describing a person that is Paul at some sort of pre-Christian stage seems to be not very well supported, then that leaves you with the view that these verses are describing the experience of a genuine believer. Then you have to ask, and we've already seen, what kind of believer are we talking about here? Is this a person who's responded to Jesus but not yet on the other side of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out on God's people? Is this just a young believer? Or is this a mature and maturing believer in Christ? The short answer is, I believe, that we're talking about a mature or maturing believer here. We're talking about Paul himself. And here's why I think that is the case. Starting with the fairly obvious point that we've already seen. That Paul uses the first person pronoun here no less than 25 times. Some writers have come up with elaborate theories that Paul, while using the language of I, is describing the situation of the nation of Israel and its ongoing struggle with the law of God. As interesting as that theory is, there seems to to me to be no good reason to... Uh, in my mind, to take this reference of I as meaning anything other than Paul himself. And if so, it's reflecting the experience of Paul at the time of writing this letter, which is a mature and still maturing Paul. Two other reasons why these words seem to be describing the experience of a mature Christian is because of the way that Paul speaks about the law of God as only a mature Christian would say these things. 
and because of the way he speaks about himself and his situation. Again, as only a mature believer would actually be capable of doing. Right? I mean, listen to this passage. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. You know, one of the signs of immaturity for us is when, when we come up against something that's a rule is that we, we complain about the rule. We denigrate the rule. That's an immature response. Paul doesn't do that. He says, I know the law is spiritual. You know? That's like when the police officer pulls you over and you say, thank you so much. You're absolutely right. I was speeding. I was like 30 miles over the limit. That is a great law. That's what Paul's saying. He's been pulled over to the curb and he's saying the law is spiritual. I'm the problem. I'm of the flesh. That's not a young believer speaking. I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He doesn't have some ridiculous high view of himself. He's got a very sober view of himself. He's under no illusions about his heart. This is not a young believer. Wretched man that I am. Who says that? I've never heard a young believer describe themselves in those kinds of terms and actually mean it. There's a real maturity here. There's a real willingness to call a thing by its proper name. To not play games with words. To put things as boldly and plainly as possible. To acknowledge the complexity of a thing. And not to gloss over something or oversimplify it. To recognize subtleties and distinctions. It's all throughout this section of Romans. So if you can read these words. And they do not stir you up at least a little then as your pastor, I want to tell you, I'm afraid for you. I am genuinely afraid for you. Because I fear you're not paying attention. If these words do not stir you up at all, if you cannot identify with this in some way, I fear that you are sleepwalking through your Christian life. That you are deeply out of touch with the true state of your heart. That you haven't had near enough conversations with your brothers and sisters in Christ and looked in the eyes of a person who is broken and weeping over the wretchedness of their own soul and the helplessness that they feel before their own sin. You have not sat in front of enough of those people. Which means you're disconnected from the body. From your brothers and sisters. You're not being the help to them that you might be. You're not allowing them to be a help to you. And you might be wondering, why am I going on about this? Why is this so important? Why am I spending so much time trying to show what I think is and is not the background of this passage? And the short answer is because it matters. It matters a great deal. Because if we think this passage is describing the experience of an unbeliever then it's interesting but not relevant for us if we're believers. Worse, it's confusing. 
Because it describes an unbeliever who's attuned to spiritual things in a way that undermines so much of what is said in other places in the New Testament about unbelievers. It matters because if you think these verses are describing a pre-Pentecost believer, then it might set you up to think that the norm in Christianity is a two-stage spiritual experience. There's your initial conversion. Later on, there's this second experience involving the Holy Spirit. And then this sort of wrong-headedness might send you looking for this second blessing. And along with that, it sets you up for the grave disillusionment and disappointment when you inevitably discover that the second experience did not make you the super-Christian you thought you'd become who was resistant to all but the most benign of sins. It matters because if you think these words are only describing a young or new believer, and if you're an older or more mature believer, you'll become deeply discouraged and possibly disillusioned because you'll see yourself still struggling in ways that you thought would have been left behind by now, and thus you might begin to doubt whether you have made any progress whatsoever in your faith. But if you understand that these verses are describing a continuing reality for believers at the beginning, in the middle, and the end of their spiritual journey, then you at least have some protection from the hopelessness with which Satan tries to destroy you. And that's huge because you could read these verses in a negative way, as a description of a life of defeatedness. That's not what's being said here. Paul's not saying that he's always being overtaken and giving in to his sin and that that is the only reality in his life. These verses do not have to be read that way and shouldn't be. He's not just throwing up his hands and saying, what can I do? But what he is doing is describing what it is like for him now when he does sin. He's, he's mapping out the mental landscape of what goes on in his heart and mind and what ought to be going on in his heart and mind when he is caught up. I was in Barnes & Noble the other day looking at the bargain books that are always, you know, you walk in the entryway and there's there's always these 9.95 books on every subject under the sun. I get stuck there for ridiculous amounts of time. And one of the ones I was looking at this week was a history of famous battles. And in little short chapters, and you open it up, and it's the battle of this and the battle of that, and it kind of describes it, and there's a few pictures, and then always there's this diagram that shows how the battle went, and what happened and who went where, how it played out. It's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's addressing the criticism from some that he has no need or respect for the law of God and saying, essentially, look, he's saying to them, essentially, look, you've got me all wrong. I love the law of God. It's a good thing. I don't have a problem with the law. My problem is with the sin which indwells me and which uses the law against me to wage war within me. And in talking about what that battle looks like, Paul gives at least three things here that, as Piper says, are what the normal Christian response to our ongoing battle with sin ought to be like. That's how he puts it. He says, what Paul is saying is not that Christians live in continual defeat, but that no Christian lives in continual victory over sin. What Paul is doing is trying to give his readers a realism about the pursuit of holiness. Because the lack of realism in that pursuit can be devastating for you. 
You can have a view of attaining it that is overly ambitious and not realistic, and that will destroy you. You can have a view that is not ambitious enough, that is underwhelming, and which will also destroy you. So as Piper continues, in those moments and times when we fail to triumph over sin, Romans 7, 14 to 25, is the normal way a healthy Christian should respond. He should say three things. He should say, first of all, I love the law of God. Verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. He should say, secondly, I hate what I just did. I love the law of God. I hate what I just did. Verse 15, I'm doing the very thing I hate. Thirdly, oh, the wretchedness I feel in these times. Love the law. Hate what I did. What a wretch I am. That's normal. I long for deliverance from this body that constantly threatens to kill me and that I have to mortify day after day. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Nobody should want to live this way or settle to live this way. That's not the point. The point is when you do live this way, this is the Christian response. No lying, no hypocrisy, no posing, no pretended perfectionism. Lord, deliver us from being a church like that, with pasted-on smiles and chipper superficiality and blindness to our own failures and a consequent quickness to judge others. Give us honesty and candor and humility like the Apostle Paul. Who will deliver me? Friends, that is not the cry of a person who has no hope. That is the cry of a person. And it's not the cry of a person who is beyond help. It is the cry of a person who is beginning to understand where his only hope can be found. He's just starting to get it. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord that the righteousness I cannot achieve or earn or maintain for five consecutive minutes in my own flesh has been imputed to me, credited to me, freely given to me because of the Lord Jesus. And I can therefore claim again and again, as often as necessary, the glorious truth of Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What Satan wants you to believe is that there is condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you haven't escaped the wrath of God. That it's not settled. That's what Christ has done isn't enough. That it will not deliver you in the end. That God will not finish what he started. That your ongoing struggle with sin is proof. That you are worthless. That you are useless. Your sin will always have the upper hand. And you will never win. That's what he wants you to believe. Don't believe it. Don't you believe it, not for a single second. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The struggle is real, the battle is strong, but your Savior is stronger. And more importantly, He's already won. He's already won on your behalf and in your place. Don't give up the fight, whatever you do. 
Because the fight is the strongest, most objective evidence to your heart that your faith is real. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this grace that we are only beginning to understand. And the power that is there to transform us, to do in us and for us what the law, as good as it is, could never do because it is impotent. We thank you, Father, that you've given us your spirit, that your spirit is working. And I pray for the specific work now, Father, that you would work in the hearts of those who are in this room this morning who are discouraged by a long season of battle with a particular sin. Father, would you show them the truth about their standing with you? And would you win them over? Produce within them a motivation that only can come from gratitude, from love, from pursuing the one that you are completely enamored with, not the one that you are trying to pay back a debt to. Cause us to pursue you that way for that reason. Lift us up from despair. Help us to not believe the lies, but to believe the truth that you've given us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If those who are taking up the morning offering will come forward, we'll receive that at this time.